Can He Do That is sponsored by Bowl and Branch. Getting a great night's sleep is easier and more affordable than you think. Go to bowlandbranch.com today for $50 off your first set of sheets. Promo code Can He Do That. I mean, it's kind of interesting. You can't just go to North Korea and American. It is, it is the only country that is considered a geographically restricted zone. And so, for example, when I went, even though I was on the plane with the Secretary of State of the United States of America, I had to go get a brand new passport and it was stamped in the back on the biometrics page they actually had encased in plastic. It said, please see page 27. And when you turn to page 27, there was a special stamp on it saying, this passport is good for one visit to the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Carol Morello is a reporter at The Washington Post who covers diplomacy and the U.S. State Department. She was one of two reporters who traveled to Pyongyang last month to shadow Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. He was picking up three prisoners from North Korea and brought them home to the United States. And her story about the sheer logistical difficulties of the process geographic restrictions and a special passport and diplomatic dispensations, it makes it clear just how strange and incredible it is that this week, the president of the United States will be sitting down face to face with the leader of North Korea. In fact, if President Trump sit down with Kim Jong-un in Singapore goes down as planned, it will be historic the first time the heads of these two countries will be meeting since the founding of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea in 1948. So that's all to say, when we think about what to expect, there's not much precedent here. I'm Martine Powers, and this is Can He Do That, a podcast about the powers and limitations of the American presidency. And this week, we wanted to sit down and talk with Carol about what she thinks is going to happen when Trump sits down at a table across from Kim Jong-un. What will they talk about? What can Trump use as bargaining chips? What can he promise? And what limits does he have as he starts on these negotiations? And for the president, what will success look like at the end of this meeting? What will it look like in the long term? And perhaps most important, are they actually having this meeting on a luxury private island? Well, we know they're going to sit down at a fancy resort that typically has celebrities visiting it on an island in Singapore. And so it's extremely isolated. It will be the two of them, but let's face it, they're both going to have, you know, numerous aides with them. Beyond that, we're going to have to see how it goes. Uh, Trump will have Mike Pompeo, the secretary of state, with him, who has been doing a number of negotiations with them. He's been to North Korea twice, and a week ago in New York, he met with uh, the former spy chief, sort of the, the number two guy in North Korea. Uh, who came to the United States, and he met with him again to set out what the agenda may be. So Pompeo is going to be extremely important in this. Uh, he started talking with the North Koreans and going there when he was still head of the CIA. So he's been doing this a long time. This is as much uh, his baby as it is Trump's. Do we have a sense of what 
President Trump or Mike Pompeo are looking to get out of this meeting? I mean, you said that they were talking about setting an agenda. So what what is on that agenda? Well, they have one big red line, and that is what they repeat it so often that they go by the acronym, which is CVID. It stands for Comprehensive, Verifiable, Irreversible Denuclearization. And, and what does that mean? Well, they, they still have many details to work out, of course, and this will be done by aides in more meetings in months and possibly years to come. But they, they say they want to be able to be sure that North Korea abandons completely denuclearizes, abandons all, all of its nuclear weapons, and uh, that it is verifiable, the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Commission, be able to send in inspectors to check it, and that it is irreversible, unlike, for example, this uh, much publicized blowing up of the missile test site that they did a couple weeks ago and invited journalists to come in and film it, but no experts. There was a big explosion, but experts later said it was not big enough to completely destroy it, and it, in fact, can be reversed. So they want something done. Uh, For example, during the Iran uh, nuclear deal, uh, one of the uh, one of the reactors they poured cement in the nuclear core. That's enough to make it ir- to make it irreversible. They want to make sure it's not just a stopgap measure that can be easily turned around in the future. If denuclearization is on the top list of their priorities, is that exclusively what they're going to be bargaining over? Are there other issues at play here? Well, one of the big issues will be when. North Korea could expect to see some sort of sanctions relief. Uh, North Korea and China as well want to have North Korea's steps that they take to to meet U.S. demands matched along the way by some concessions by the United States. And the United States is taking the position, we will lift sanctions and we will give you relief only when everything is done. Uh, so that is going to be a huge bone of contention. There seems to be this this kind of running narrative within North Korea that that it is very possible that that the U.S. could decide to attack North Korea, could decide to attack Kim Jong Un or or um, other parts of his country. What kinds of guarantees is he going to be looking to get from President Trump, and are those the kinds of guarantees that the president will be able to give him? Well, certainly security is very high on their agenda, maybe even the the primary item at the top of their agenda. Uh, The way that they have described it uh, suggests that what they are really looking for is a U.S. military pullback to Hawaii and the continental United States, just completely get out of having joint exercises with the South Koreans and close its bases in South Korea. Uh, The North Koreans have said they are not interested in uh, unilateral abandonment of their nuclear weapons. So they are expecting some sort of concessions from the United States. And one of those is in the secure, the main one is in the security realm, both for the U.S. to withdraw so they can get rid of the perceived threat from the United States of an invasion. And the other one, uh, I, I don't know, they speak it so speak about it so overtly in North Korea, but it's clear they're talking about the survival of the regime. 
that's one reason why they were particularly upset when John Bolton, the national security advisor, uh, a few weeks ago said that the U.S. was looking at the Libyan model, which had Libya giving up its arsenal, uh, and it ended with Muammar Gaddafi being killed. Uh, that's how they interpreted it. And the North Koreans reacted to that. And that's why the uh, the the summit was briefly called off before being called back on again. And how deeply do you think that President Trump and Kim Jong-un are going to dive into human rights issues and human rights abuses that have gotten a lot of attention? Well, they are expected to have some. You know, the the Japanese prime minister was here recently, and for the Japanese, it's very one of their very important issues is uh, talking about what they call the abductees. There are a number of Japanese, uh, some who were taken away from near the border decades ago, and their families haven't heard from them for 40 or so years. They very much want Trump to bring it up with the North Koreans. And so because Abe has come here personally and made this appeal, and it brings it up every one of the dozens of times that they have spoken in the last year, that uh, so they are probably about to... They're probably going to talk about that some. It's unclear how much he will go into human rights abuses, you know, in the labor camps or anything else. So a lot of the reason why, or at least I think that President Trump would say a lot of the reason why this meeting came about in the first place was because of the kind of rhetoric that he used in talking about Kim Jong-un and the messages that he sent him using terms like little rocket man and fire and fury. The fact that this meeting is actually happening, I mean, does that suggest that President Trump's take on this is, and his approach to this has been has been right? Well, the president and his allies would say that. I, th- I think it's more an opinion than a fact that we can prove at this point. You know, they if his rhetoric has changed, his allies would say, well, that's because uh, North Korea has changed. Uh, I think skeptics think that all remains to be seen. It's not 100 percent clear to what degree North Korea is willing to give up its nuclear weapons. Secretary Pompeo has said he believes that they are willing to do this. But the speed and whether it will meet what the United States is seeking is is unclear. You know, we're just going to have to see. But it is fair to point out, I think sometimes we forget how close the threat seemed at the time, you know, uh, Late last year, I was with then-Secretary Tillerson as he was returning from a meeting in Asia, and it was at the time when President Trump was threatening fire and fury, and the North Koreans were talking about how they were going to be uh, testing a nuclear weapon just off the coast of Guam, and that happened to be where we were flying uh, to do refueling. So as we were about to start descending, I was going. I asked Secretary Tillerson and the other people on the plane how concerned they were flying into an area where theoretically there was the imminent threat of a nuclear blast happening. And they all sort of poo-pooed it, said they didn't think about it. But it seemed that close at the time uh, that the, the two nuclear-armed nations were just this close to starting to... unleash their fury at each other. So that is certainly, I think, even some of the the biggest skeptics of President Trump have expressed relief that it is no longer such a hot-button issue that it seems the threat seems to have receded to a certain degree at this point. To what extent do you think that this meeting 
is driven by the idea of re- the recognition and historic nature that it brings to both President Trump and and Kim Jong-un, that this is the first time that it's happening, that it gives uh, a new platform for Kim Jong-un and, and sort of a, a historic first for the president. You know, there's there's a reason why previous administrations never met with the leader of North Korea. They they felt that this was something that should be given as as a reward at the end of months or years of negotiation. So President Trump has turned that formula on its head. You know, it certainly has the potential and the promise that something positive can come out of this. But I don't think we should expect all that much from this one summit. Even the White House is trying to downplay expectations. And so it's highly likely that the most concrete thing that could come out of this one-day or possibly two-day summit would be some sort of a commitment or a statement saying that there should be an official end to the Korean War, which ended 65 years ago in an armistice. Uh, But that it is quite clear that this is a process. The president has said so. Uh, Secretary Pompeo has said so. This is going to take months and possibly years, more likely years, of ongoing negotiations to pin down the specifics. It's so complex. This is a game of chess, not of checkers. Well, that's one thing that I want to try to make clear. So going into this meeting, President Trump isn't expected to make promises, right? And and can he even make binding promises with North, North Korea? Well, he has described it as sort of a meet and greet plus. So uh, sort of getting to know each other and seeing how they can, they can uh, work and how their personalities mesh, perhaps set up uh, some more formal lines of communications and make an agreement to have their surrogates meet and work out all the details. So, you know, very few people are expecting any kind of, uh, you know, concrete commitments to come out of this other than possibly an agreement that they will declare the uh, uh, peace and an end to the Korean War that ended in 1953. Uh, But even that is somewhat controversial. Previous presidents thought that that should be uh, taken care of at the end of negotiations, not at the beginning. And it could open the door to the United States uh, being asked to with withdraw and or and pull back its military commitment to South Korea, which they don't want. Uh, we we're just we can't expect too much. There will be something. I think that the two leaders are primarily trying to suss each other out and their intentions and to see if when they meet eye to eye and and talk, whether they believe that they have something that they can work on a deal with. So I guess is that is that what success looks like in this case, that it would just be some sort of statement at the end that says we are looking forward to continuing to work on this? Well, I think it's I think one summit, this is the beginning of a process, not the end. So I think that unless it turns out that they just completely clash and somebody walks away and it's a complete failure, which is very unlikely to happen at this stage, given the preliminary talks that have already gone on. Uh, I think it would be too soon to declare it success or not a success. You know, it's I'm, people will do that. But realistically, this is just the beginning of talks, uh, more, you know, averting disaster rather than eliminating it. So uh, if they keep talking, 
you know, we're still on the right path. Can He Do That is sponsored by Bowl & Branch. Getting a great night's sleep is easier and more affordable than you think. Go to bowlandbranch.com today for $50 off your first set of sheets. That's B-O-L-L and branch.com. Promo code, can he do that? Over the course of her career, Carol Morello has covered a lot of these kinds of high-level talks between U.S. secretaries of state and foreign diplomats. And when she looks back on those experiences, there's one big takeaway that applies to the coming meeting in Singapore. Carol says that we probably won't hear a lot of details about the conversation between Trump and Kim Jong-un, at least not at first. I have to say, I it's very difficult for me to say what it's like inside the negotiations, because when you go to cover these negotiations, you don't actually see anything of the talks other than the handshake at the beginning, possibly one or two words if they answer a question that we shout out. Most of the time we spend waiting in hotel lobbies for them to come out and give us a statement. So covering these talks is usually not covering the talks per se, but uh, the, the reaction and the statements they make afterwards. Do you think they'll be relatively open and sort of giving a rundown of what they discuss in those negotiations, or will it all be no. very... <laughs> you can, no. You no. can say that with confidence now? Well, they have they have these things if you've ever seen them after the secretary or the president has a call with his counterpart. They will have what they call readouts, uh, and sometimes it's very interesting to compare the two readouts because they one seem, one will stress one thing, the other will stress another thing. Very often, the White House readouts and the State Department readouts make it look like they, everything was fine. They just discussed issues of mutual interest. And then you start reading the local press, and they are hearing from their people that they had uh, points of conflict. So I think we will eventually get a better sense of how the talks went, but certainly not immediately afterwards. Generally, the way these things work is people, the, the leaders, the people who are actually in the talks try to put the best spin on it that they can. You mentioned covering Secretary Kerry as he was working on the Iran nuclear deal, um, which obviously the president now has just chosen to back out of. What will Do you think that that will have any effect on these negotiations with North Korea in terms of whether the president or, you know, this president or future presidents can sort of be held to, to, to whatever commitments they make in this process? Well, uh, to agree... To a degree, you will see it. For example, if they come up with, a, if they eventually come to an agreement with North Korea, then it will it will be some sort of a, a formal treaty that will have to go to Congress for approval. Uh, not what Secretary Pompeo sort of dismissively called a, just a piece of paper. Uh, it will have to be ratified by the United States Congress. But other things it's going to be interesting to see, uh, Wendy Sherman, who was the lead negotiator on the Iran talks, has argued that the best way to judge how President Trump does in this is to compare it to his criticisms of the Iran deal. Uh, for example, one of those criticisms is that uh, the 
IAEA inspectors uh, are not allowed into military sites on demand to do inspections on mere suspicion. We will see if he is able to get that from the North Koreans. It's a little difficult to imagine the North Koreans or to agree to something that no other country in the world does, to allow foreign inspectors to come in and on the spot say, I demand to be allowed into this military site to see what's going on. So it will be interesting to compare his criticisms of the Iran deal with what he is able to accomplish in in this. It's, it's hard to believe that everything he was critical of in the Iran deal, he will be able to finesse when actually going into negotiations with the North Koreans, because we have to remember these are these are negotiations. They're not a capitulation. It's not a surrender. So uh, there's going to have to be some wiggle room on what the United States is willing to give up, as well as what it's able to demand. Can you talk a little bit more about the the what the stakes are for China, for South Korea, for Japan? Well, for China, China, I think, is a particularly interesting case. China has been North Korea's economic lifeline, really, in, in this time of what the State Department calls the maximum pressure campaign. Ninety uh, percent of the trade that North Korea continues to have uh, basically goes through its border with China. China would also like to see the United States have some sort of military withdrawal, and they want to prevent a situation where... North Korean refugees flood across their border. But let's face it, China is expanding in parts of the world where the United States is withdrawing in influence. The Middle East, uh, you know, in Asia, in Latin America, uh, the U.S. withdrawal from the TPP has allowed China to play a greater role in in having the rules follow what it wants instead of what the United States wants. So I think it's difficult to isolate the impact on, on China and on China's relationship with the United States solely based on North Korea. This is just a, a piece of a whole. And China's influence, uh, not only in the region but around the world, is expanding as the United States withdraws. And then how about for, for South Korea? I think in South Korea, people have a, have had a dream for a long time of reunification. They have family members, you know, people, they have a long history. These are the same people. And I think that everyone's hope is that somewhere down the road, they can be one nation again. Now, this could still be decades in the future. Uh, and obviously, they are the ones who are closest to North Korea and would be right in the line of fire if things were to boil over. So I think there's there's a sense of relief and a, and a sense of pride that their current president has really been the driving force for uh, the overtures that have been made between the two countries and that they have gone, come so far so quickly. One of the things I've heard about Japan's take on all of this is that they're concerned that, that whatever deal the president makes with North Korea is looking out for the U.S. only, and then still allowing for uh, safety risks for North Korea and Japan. How is Japan kind of navigating this situation? Well, don't forget, I believe that Prime Minister Abe was the, the one of the, if not the first foreign leader to come to the United States after Trump 
was elected to and to, uh, you know, congratulate him and come for an official visit. So uh, I have seen lists of every phone call that he has had, every interaction he's had with President Trump in the past 17 months. And it fills two pages, single-spaced. It's And in every one of these meetings, he I'm told he has discussed North Korea. And part of the discussion of North Korea, they have two big issues. One is the abductees, and the other one is they they keep... He keeps telling the president, please don't focus only on long-range missiles. Our concern is medium and and short-range missiles. These are the missiles that are flying over us. So I I believe that the Japanese feel fairly confident that it will at least be raised. Uh, It certainly is a concern, but they have been working for 17 months solid to make sure that the president recognizes how deep their concern is on this. Um, you traveled with the Secretary of State to North Korea. I think it was a few a few weeks ago. I did it. I did early early in the month. Yep, a month ago. And when I read your account of that, one of the I guess one of the the big takeaways that I got from that was how haphazard it felt at times, or that you know that oftentimes these sort of meetings, or at least historically, have been so highly orchestrated and so. Um, uh, planned down to like the most minute details and that this was was very different. Yeah, it was. Usually when you go on a trip with the Secretary of State, uh, they will hand you a schedule. Sometimes you get the schedule days in advance, you know, down to the minute who the meetings are with and what time they will be. And sometimes they'll add a few or drop one or two. But you know well ahead of time who the who the secretary is going to be meeting with and more or less when. Uh, on this one, uh, you know, secretary came back. He wasn't sure who he was going to meet. Uh, he had no idea when as the – there was one other reporter on the trip. We sort of were camped out in the hotel lobby while they were up in these rooms in a in a, a hotel that's reserved for foreigners in downtown, in the center of Panmun, of, of uh, Pyongyang. And uh, periodically, I would say every hour or so, someone from the State Department would come down and say, we're waiting, we're just waiting to hear from them. We don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, literally after this luncheon, about half an hour after the luncheon, uh, Kim, Jong-un's, Kim Jong-un's uh, aide came and said, you're going to meet with him, you will leave in 45 minutes. Uh, they had, It was all very, uh, we hope we're going to be able to meet with him, we hope we're going to bring prisoners back, but we have no guarantees, we're just going to have to see what happens. Uh, I have been on dozens of trips with secretaries of state, and I've never seen anything uh, quite that unscripted. Do you think that this upcoming meeting will have that same sort of unscripted quality to it? And and also, what do you think that says about the State Department under President Trump? Well, no, I don't think it will be so unscripted. You know, the, the, the one part that we really don't know is how the two men will hit it off when they actually meet in person. Uh, but I think that, you know, they have had 
teams uh, meeting everywhere besides Secretary Pompeo's efforts. They had the logistics team meeting with their counterparts in Singapore, and uh, they had uh, in the DMZ, a U.S. team was meeting with North Koreans uh, to discuss the agenda as well and the the content of what the talks would be about. Uh, they They spent weeks talking about this. So everything is being discussed down to, you know, an inth of its life. So they have a much better idea what's on the script. However, certainly President Trump and from what we know of Kim Jong-un, both of these leaders uh, are likely to, they have a tendency to go with their instinct. And so who knows what kind of direction it could veer off into. Uh, either good or bad, you know. I I think that there is certainly the a strong possibility there will be an element of surprise, uh, despite all the very careful planning. Because if there's anything that's safe to assume of President Trump, it's this: he is always willing to ignore careful orchestration and to opt for the unexpected. In this case, who knows if that penchant for surprise will actually play out well for Trump when he's sitting down face-to-face with Kim Jong-un. But as Carol points out, at least they're sitting down together. And in many ways, that's much better than the alternative. These are going to be talks. This is going to be a process. And there are changes many of us will not live to see. They could not only years, but possibly decades in the future before we see these changes. But this is the beginning, and it's better than having two leaders threatening nuclear war uh, at any given moment. Thanks for listening to Can He Do That? from The Washington Post. We want to give you a heads up on a project that we've been working on for a while now that we're really excited to share. It's a Can He Do That? miniseries coming out at the end of this month. And it's about midterm elections. We're looking at make-or-break midterms from the last few decades, telling the -the behind-the-scenes stories of the winners and the losers. And we're talking about how presidents shaped and were shaped by those midterm elections. So please look out for that coming in your feed at the end of this month. In the meantime, we'd love if you could take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or anywhere else that you listen. Check out previous episodes at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. Can He Do That is produced by Carol Alderman, with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. I'm the host, Martine Powers, filling in for Allison Michaels. And special thanks to Carol Morello for coming on the show today. do that, you should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Retropod, a daily show for history lovers featuring surprising stories about the past, rediscovered. Or try Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, 
where Jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.